Welcome to this, the latest episode of Do You Know What? A podcast where three Jews try and agree with each other and discuss what's happening at the moment. I'm one of your hosts, Leo Mindell, and I'm joined today with my other hosts, and I'll let them introduce themselves. I'll start with Rebecca. Hi Leo, I'm Rebecca Singerman-Knight. Um, I am the Deputy Chair and Press and Publicity Officer for Kingston Liberal Synagogue, a lovely community in South West London. And when I'm not doing that in my day job, I teach piano at home. And the last to speak this time, and probably the last to speak at every conversation she's ever involved in, is <laughs> Rabbi Charlie. Welcome. Thank you, Leo. Yes, I'm Rabbi Charlie Beginsky. I'm currently the Interim Director for Liberal Judaism. And it's lovely to be sharing the virtual couch with you both, as always. This week, we have a guest. Uh, we're bringing on board and would like to introduce you. How do we address you? Um, I tell my parishioners they can call me what they want as long as it's uh, reasonably clean. You don't uh, want to say that to us. <laughs> He said um, reasonably clean, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the parish, I'm often Father John. Um, here, John John is more common, so I'm happy with John. So welcome, Father John. Where is your parish? Uh, I'm in Eastcote, uh, a parish called uh, St. Lawrence's in Eastcote. A very nice church, know it very well, uh, not far from okay. me. Uh, my reason of knowing it, I've been involved in the Scouts, which we may or may not discuss uh, another ah. life. So the R is either sympathy or recognition. It's starting with recognition. So actually, I know John from a very different context, not from his parish, which also isn't very far from me. But we met on a citizens training many, many moons ago now, John. Citizens, for anybody who don't know, is a community organising programme, group. And we met on one of their training programmes. Hmm. We just clicked, didn't we? I mean, we were in a sort of seminar thing together and I think just spotted each other and it felt right to have a conversation and uh, the rest is history. The rest is history. After, I think, some of the classic sitting, doing the training, we went to the pub and that was really where the proper conversation began to take place. And we've we've been in many bars since, inspiring those classic jokes of a rabbi and a priest walk into... (laughs) Into a bar. Into a bar, exactly. (laughs) We've really discussed lots and lots of things over the years. And so I'm really glad to have you on our virtual couch as part of this conversation and to let Rebecca and Leo also talk to you about some of the things that we find really fascinating to discuss. uh, Gender, politics, um, LGBT uh, issues, Church of England, different theology. I don't know where you want to start. Leo. Where I want to start really is somebody from the outside not understanding this, how you become ordained as a father. How does that process work? Where did that start and how long does it take? How long it takes varies a lot from individual to individual. But it starts with someone identifying a sense of desire or call from God to be involved in leadership in church in some way. But that is just the beginning. It's one thing for an individual to feel they're called to lead a congregation. It's quite another for a congregation to feel that person's called to lead them. Um, (laughs) And so the next step of discernment involves taking on various leadership roles in church and talking to people about what they think about uh, whether you have a call to ministry or not. So did you have a career before this? I did, did yes. 
Well, my, my own sort of cool story is, is a sort of overlapping one. I came to faith as a Christian whilst I was training in medicine uh, at the end of my second year in medical school. Completed my training, uh, so that was six years, and then spent three years working in hospital medicine. But over that time, that experience of conversion and an original sense of me being about healing and people's wholeness um, moved. So, you know, I remember in year, what's now year nine, second or third year in comprehensive school, um, knowing that I was about that and trying to work out how best to give that expression. Um, so medicine seemed like the, the best route to take. And I enjoyed both training in medicine and medical practice. But having come to faith, felt if I remained in medicine, I'd feel more like a technician than dealing with the whole person. Um, and certainly my own uh, experience of encounter with God and the intensity of that left me feeling that was at the, the core of both social transformation and personal transformation as well. In terms of me discerning my vocation, um, that's that was quite a convoluted route. I, I did um, initially put my, my parish priest that I was thinking about this, and he clearly didn't think I was a very um, strong candidate, so he told me to go away and uh, do something else for a while. <laughs> I um, was interested in living in community for a while, so I um, arranged... At the, at the end of my SHO rotation, my sort of first or um, second junior doctor round, to spend some time in a parish in London and to spend a month living alongside a monastic community uh, just outside of Oxford. As that period was coming up, as, the, as my medical rotation was coming to an end, uh, the person who I was going to spend time with in the parish said that there was a scheme that St Paul's Cathedral was setting up in which uh, there was an opportunity to live community life, um, to study, to worship together, um, to work in the cathedral, to think about how the church relates to wide society. Um, and she thought that, that might be a more uh, apposite opportunity for me in terms of vocational exploration. Um, so with quite a deep swallow, because this is a two-year commitment rather than a few months out, um, I went for that. So I spent a month living alongside some some monks in Oxford and um, spent two years as part of a lay community that St Paul's set up. And during that latter two years was uh, when I went through the discernment process formally with Diocese of London. So you meet one-on-one -on -one with a discernment um, officer for the church, um, go through a series of um, well, it feels like an endless sort of life description of your life story in which things are kind of crystallised out and challenged and explored. Um, you also do some sessions alongside other people who think they're called to ministry. Um, and then you're eventually sent to a selection conference uh, where you spend 48 hours on a residential with other people discerning vocation. Um, you have three interviews. There's one pastoral one, there's an academic one. I think there's a vocation one. You have to do various presentations. And then they write out of that uh, discernment conference to your bishop to tell them what they think in terms of your vocation. That's up to your bishop to decide whether they accept their recommendation or override it. Um, and that's then followed by a period of training and, and how long you train for and how you train depends on how old you are and what direction of ministry you're headed in. The sorting hat would be a lot quicker. It would. I'd love to know how that, um, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners would be interested to know as well, how does that vary and compare to the training to be a rabbi, Charlie? It varies a lot. It's mm. really different. And I'm really struck from hearing John talk. And I'm actually quite often struck by it when we're having conversations about where the similarities and where the differences are. And one of the major differences is around language and particularly language around faith, what, what that means. So even sometimes when our jobs are very similar, the pathway is very different, especially over the language around faith and vocation. Um, so rabbinical training is a long interview process as well, then five years uh, training, which is 
although there is a vocational side to it, is very, very academic laden. And I'm not sure how many rabbis you would get talking about their their call to faith or call to minister. Or... Now, I noticed that as a very interesting difference. Although I would argue that one of the things with Judaism, as you may know, John, is that for somebody to become or to convert, typically in the Orthodox side, they're asked three times and told to get stuffed twice. <laughs> and it was interesting to hear you say almost that you had that rejection at the beginning of your call to becoming uh, a vicar. Hmm. Did I use the right word, vicar? Just to explain the differences, uh, there are three uh, sort of orders of ministry in the Christian church. Deacon, priest and bishop. Deacon's a sort of servant role with a a focus on uh, proclaiming the word of God. Priests are leaders within the local community and are responsible for uh, blessing and preaching, celebrating the sacraments. And bishops have this sort of oversight leadership role. But those are generic descriptions. So I was a a priest and I was a school chaplain, uh, whereas a vicar is someone who's usually based in the community, um, looking after a parish community. Um, and there are names for that other than other than vicar, depending on the particular kind of legal setup. It's fascinating how you talk about that, John. And we had this discussion on our last episode about the use of the word rabbi. On this certain, is when I got into um, trouble. Certain people, whether you are, and how... I'm you still use, smarting. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Rebecca got told off. For once, it wasn't me in trouble. Um, <laughs> about the fact that, you you know, typically in the Orthodox side... Not only will you say rabbi, but you normally say rabbi in their surname. I grew up never using the word rabbi when I addressed my rabbis. It just mm. never was done that way. But it's been, in a funny way, it's coming slowly, I think, back in. On the other side, as you've just said about there, we also have liberal reform. We have cantors. In orthodox, they'll have hazan. We don't have that. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking more about the gender and um, that one that was where the conversation went with Rebecca last time. I wasn't telling her off however <laughs> much that's um, but interestingly that uh, women rabbis particularly have noticed that people don't use their titles and wanting that title to be used in order to be able um, to, to that they've to, to signify that they've earned their their mm. role as well. And I was wondering whether you know, you you talked about being John in your community or Father John, about whether it's about your congregant when they use that title or it's about what what you need in terms of that title. And in school, again, it's different with with the kids, I suppose. Indeed. So I was school chaplain for eight years and it was interesting that the uh, senior staff of the school wanted to call me Father Seymour. Um, so they wanted to use my surname because they're used to teachers being called by their surname in a school context. And for them, there was a sense that using first name was disrespectful. Um, but certainly within the church, you expect to call people by their first names. So bishops are addressed as bishop, first name, for example. Um, and it's only in a, a military or very formal context in which someone would use your surname. But then usually with your um with your first name as well. The gender thing is really interesting. That stirs up some some interesting um, stuff in terms of in the more Catholic strand of the Church of England, priests will often be called father. If those priests are female, there's been a choice for them, and it has usually been their choice, um, as to what title they're going to take. So many um, in a more liberal strand, <laughs> a Catholic tradition within, within the Church of England, will choose to use mother, um, but there are plenty of uh, female priests around who've chosen to use the title father. Wow. 
I think that's really good and really... That is genuinely I, interesting. <laughs> I think it's genuinely interesting and generally good in my mind because I think that at the end of the day, a pronoun is about position and the responsibility and the awe you have on somebody. So I always hark back. I'm a big fan of uh, the TV programme. You may remember The West Wing. Oh, here he goes. You know, when it was that President Bartlett was in the room, he was always referred to as President Bartlett, especially when he made decisions that were with gravitas because when you make the decisions of gravitas you're making them as the role and the person that you're respecting right but then not how the uncomfortable is it that in order to get the gravitas the title that women priests in that situation feel that they need is father to me when you talk about things and you say that these are male or female pronouns um, and they were i think if you try and change that it's difficult I mean, You're a, a man, though. A lot of female clergy using the title mother would um, borrow from, uh, again, a monastic tradition in which the mother superior, the person in charge, is the mother, or the equivalence of the language. I don't think there are that many female priests around who would feel they had to use father as a superior title to, to mother in context. In fact, you'd probably ha they'd probably more likely to be using mother to say, I, I don't need to be father in this in this institution but I, I i guess it's like when you see things where people say you know call me chairperson i don't like chairperson or chairwoman i think it if you're the you have the responsibility in the role and the fact your sex is not the issue that makes you the person of the power that you have in a way charlie's, charlie's disagreeing <laughs> and I disagree. has just pushed through her cheek <laughs> <laughs> i really struggle with it leo in all honesty i feel like as somebody who was part of fighting for titles to not name your gender and for um, also on a personal journey to becoming the sense that I, I can bring my gender and my motherhood and all of that to my role and it doesn't make me inferior. All of that is exposed in this conversation for me that for a long time I felt like you had to leave all that behind in order to be good at your job or recognised or authoritative. And now, for me, maturity, possibly, is about being able to be integrated as a woman and a mother and a rabbi and all of those things making me better at my job. But part of that also comes with becoming more senior because suddenly you have the power to be able to do that. And I think that's much harder when you're early on in your career. Rabbi is non-gendered. So we had the conversation last time, but obviously, you know, you are a rabbi. The fact that you're female as well is is not relevant to that. But the conversation we're having with John is about father or mother, and father and mother are both gendered pronouns. Um, so that's why I think it makes it so much more problematic, um, because obviously there is something that kind of uh, grates, I think, with the idea of calling a woman a father. It just it, of course, you know, mm. we can't think of father without thinking about male. Well, I, I think you, you're absolutely so right. Is there a, is there an alternative? Is there an alternative in the in the church, John? So that's why I was trying to flag up some stuff about um, theological tradition within the Church of England, because there are lots of people who choose to be called uh, reverend or the reverend ah. first name, surname. So it's, it is a more Catholic tradition that tends to go with father and mother. So in the liberal tradition, we have changed all our gender around the names for God. So you don't find father 
in our liturgy anymore. And I think that's also where some of that Balkan comes because having take, removed it from all of our liturgy. So we, we've tried to degender everything. And perhaps you can't degender everything. But at the same time, for many people, while father and mother might be incredibly warming and break down barriers for other people father and mother just in those terms is incredibly problematic in terms of their relationship both to god and to the priesthood have you, have you played around with gender and liturgy and that sense or is it not problematic for you so as you were saying that i was thinking about um the relationship between the Church of England and its its liturgy and um, the Episcopal Church in the United States and its liturgy, where their theology is um, much more sensitive to gendered pronouns. There being deep problematic as well as advantages to using gendered pronouns with regards God. So you're far more likely to get a uh, gender neutral liturgy in a, a US Episcopalian church than you are in the UK. People are being more sensitive about hymns and inclusivizing those but for me, that's that's just a kind of beginning, really. Um, and as people get more sensitised to the significance of gendered language, the theology, I, I believe, will shift as well. Um, but at the core of, of Christian belief and doctrine is um, the doctrine of the Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Um, and as much as Christians are not restricted by that conception of God, that language, um, the use of the words Father, Son and Holy Spirit, um, clearly are gendered and that has a very uh, immediate and um, skewed biased uh, gender import we only have an hour long podcast so we've got plenty of time here (laughs) you've now hit onto something that i as a jew never understood and i'm sure you can explain it in less than three sentences about the holy trinity i've never understood that so you're asking me a very open question about explaining the doctrine of the trinity okay well i I don't know if i'll manage to do that but i'll try i mean the doctrine of the trinity emerged over probably three to six hundred years um after jesus life um and it was really an attempt to square the circle dogmatically of the idea that god came into our midst and lived a human life with its with its limitations. So how do you have a human being who's both fully human and fully divine at the same time? And the, the answer you come up with is, if you want to explain that theologically, is you end up with the doctrine of the Trinity. In literally in three sentences, you've now explained something that I could never understand why it was important. And now it makes sense. Is the ghost in the Trinity, is that the ghost the of Holy Christ? The Holy Goat. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> Do you know, for a split second there, I actually thought you were being serious and I thought, had I completely been mishearing this for the last 45 years no, no, of my life? At all. Um, <laughs> one, one name for the Holy Spirit is, um, is the, the Spirit of Christ, but that's uh, a sort of limited name or title. Um, so in terms of the relations between the persons of the Trinity, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, so continues to proceed from the Father, shares his eternity Um, shares many aspects of his identity, but as a distinct person. The Holy Spirit is God-breathed. So if the Son is begotten, the Spirit is breathed. And these three persons, be be aware of the kind of Greek technical background of the the word person in context. Um, Hypostasis is the more technical word, a kind of ontological, yeah, 
<laughs> so what you can't see is, is Rebecca's putting her hand over her head. So yeah, this it's is a line of completely. So whilst the spirit is described as the spirit of the Christ, um, the spirit comes from the Father and is directed through the Son. So projects is reflects the image of the Son. Um, but the Son, the Son is the only one who becomes incarnate, whereas the Spirit is everywhere present. We're beginning to talk about seeing ourselves reflected in with Christianity. So in terms of uh, God in person. But I do wonder that one of the things we talk about with language is the people that are excluded by the nature of the language that we use. So if I say to you elephant, then um, you can't help but think of an elephant. So when I hear Lord or I hear Father, there is a very specific located imagery that's created around the nature of God. But I wanted to come on to other areas of the church where there's inclusion and exclusion that often I have heard you talk about, which is about representation. And we talk a lot in liberal Judaism about inclusion and sometimes we do it really well and sometimes we do it not as well and we're we're learning. How quickly do you think the church is catching up in terms of issues of inclusion, not just around language, but generally? Um, it seems very slow to me. For some people, uh, the church's moves to inclusion have been um, kind of dizzying over the last 20 or 30 years, and they feel very disorientated by them. I mean, for me, it's quite interesting coming from a, a non-Christian background, a non-church background, and coming to faith in my early 20s. Um, coming to faith as a gay man and experiencing the church I mean, across its breadth as something very, very new and something which I expect really to be in, in touch with people's life experience and, and outlook. That said, you know, as, a, as, a, as an ordained minister, the demographics of a Christian congregation in the UK, particularly at a Church of England congregation, are often shifted very significantly in terms of age to people in their uh, 60s, 70s, 80s plus. That, that has its own uh, sort of economy in terms of how people think that uh, older people receive change and development, um, often losing sight of the fact that often the older people in the congregation have been through far more change than the younger people, and um, some of them are very open to it. I think there's also been a significant philosophical movement globally um, which we see in lots of different uh, spheres of life. Um, and I think that's one thing that's reflected in the church and that's one thing that's uh, stalled adoption of uh, change or understanding uh, acceptance of new insights. Some of the things you've just mentioned there, there was a program on TV that was about Elizabethans. So there's a new program showing the leading figures since Queen Elizabeth has come to the throne. And they covered a really exciting change that happened in the 70s both on a positive and negative the negative being mary whitehouse who some of us will remember and how the government changed its approach to what it cared about and what it ruled over i think that liberalization change although White House was pushing back against it has been mentioned in a lot of what you've just said there john and maybe what we're seeing now is you may say it's moving really slowly, but you can argue that a glacier moves very slowly, but it still moves. I guess, particularly from someone like Charlie, who is bashing down the doors of change in our society in the Judaism to be able to use um, a different approach to how we 
treat genders. Do you see that the path that you are leading there, John, you're bringing people a following in the path of the footsteps that you're making? Are you Mm. a pioneer? I always think about you in chaplaincy, and maybe it's naive, but chaplaincy in a school as a gay priest, for me, seems quite groundbreaking. And maybe that's our perception from the outside. And then I think about the change, having known you now eight, nine years, it's been a huge change for you to go from that quite radical role to parish priest. That reflection as well of leading a congregation that you don't necessarily see yourself reflected in in the same way, I think is also pioneering. And I think that's what lies behind Leo's question is, do you see yourself as breaking ground or are you just following your vocation and it seems like the next step? I mean, one thing that I, I get frustrated by with uh, in, in church parish context, I'm often told how young I am. I'm, I'm 47. When I was in school, I was one of the oldest members of staff in the school. So you know, a lot of teachers are in their early 20s. I had seniority that related both to my age, but also to my role in a school context. So I, to a degree, I think it's depends where you're starting from. Um, from my point of view, it, it, I can't see a sort of justice or rationality behind the Church of England's presence teaching on human sexuality and its failure to be more inclusive. Um, but I'm aware that there are some other people around for whom the church has moved hugely and they can't quite get their head around how this fits with an unchanging and eternal God. Just to bring, I think, both Leo and Charlie's questions together, because I think Leo's talking about the pace of change and how you can have different perceptions of how fast or slow that is. And Charlie um, asks specifically about your current role as a parish priest, as a gay man, and, and not necessarily seeing yourself reflected in in that parish. I suppose one way to ask the question is, could you see yourself doing what you're doing now 10 years ago or 15 years ago in terms of being accepted by your parish? Or do you think it could have only happened in the last in the last few years? Uh, I think... Uh clergy tend to be more or less open and challenging depending on how they think they're going to be received and how they they will feel able to minister um and i turning the clock back to the 1960s 1970s clergy felt much more able to be open and challenging um than they do now uh, because really really, really, really um, so since the 1980s, particularly with uh, Gene Robinson's consecra- con- consecration as bishop in New Hampshire, um, there's been a, a really um, major doubling down on he- teaching about human sexuality and gender. And this has been a global phenomenon. Um, so one of the ironies of uh, the Church of England and its relationship with the Anglican Communion is that many churches in the Anglican Communion, I think, really didn't know each other very well before Gene Robinson was consecrated. Uh, but when suddenly the Church of England and the Anglican community needed to forge a new sense of unity in the context of what Maddie saw to be a, a theological threat to the core doctrine of, of the Christian faith, it was at that point that um, dogma suddenly became a lot more important and polit- political structures became a lot more important. And that's had quite a lot of washback into the Church of England as the mother church of the, of the Anglican communion. I think that's always the case. You know, when liberalism pushes forward at times you can argue that liberalism pushes too far forward 
it pushes the boundaries, it stretches the things, it's same as our kids do this to us, pushes the boundaries and then you retract. Sometimes you retract too far and sometimes you find that you have to accept the levels and you find the middle ground and we have to move it forward. And I think that's the fascinating thing is something like the church and the same as we have with uh, Judaism and the various different levels. Where we are, one end and one ex- extreme in the ref- in what would be called progressive Judaism in the world, we do things that the Orthodox really can't get their head around at the beginning. However, I would argue that once they see it after a while, some of the things we do, they adopt. But on the other side, I think we go back again as well and we start re-adding back in things that we abandoned. And a good example of that, wearing of a tallis. Mm. When I finished my bar mitzvah, I took a talus off and I probably didn't put it on again in synagogue for a number of years because it just wasn't the way. I think there's a a bigger thing that's happening, though, which is around how we define what it means to be religious. So whether you need those trappings of the talit or... Um, in order to be seen as being religious, whether you need to close down conversation or expand it in order to to be defined as religious. And we're having this discussion a lot um, around the round tables to do with faith buildings being uh, reopened because we've been really involved as religious leaders in the conversation around um, what's shut and what's not and how do you get people back into buildings and we've had access to government and to policymakers in a way that I think for years and years we haven't had and suddenly as part of this conversation we're all saying we don't want this to end because COVID's coming to an end or our buildings are open closed in whatever manner but actually we've got something to say on all sorts of aspects of society, whether that's gender inclusion, on um, on poverty, on all sorts of schooling, so much to say and so much that our communities are a part of and representative of. And so there's a whole question of where people want to put religion at the moment, I'm saying, around. And to say it, it's very closely divined in the ritual and in building, whereas we're saying as religious leaders, and I always think, John, you've you've always got something to say on the kind of political nature of uh, religion and religious leaders. So thinking about those two questions, I was also uh, watching the uh, new Elizabethans and was struck by how Roy Jenkins, um, as Home Secretary, was the kind of herald of this permissive um, society, and how there was a kind of backlash against that that Mary Whitehouse ended up embodying. And I was particularly struck by the the events in Trafalgar Square, which were part of the, the programme as well, in which uh, there's this sort of fest- national festival of light in which Mary Whitehouse uh, ends up with this, this sort of stage, and it's presented as a group of evangelical Christians um, kind of supporting her in her resistance to this permissive society, which she re- she's reacting against. I'm, I'm just interested to see how the reaction ends up being sequestered and attached to different groups of people, uh, both religiously and within society as well. So what was being presented was that you know younger people were enjoying a more liberal, more permissive, uh, sexually more open uh, lifestyle, and, and Mary Whitehouse was kind of outraged that. Um, her, her concept of no sex for marriage and fidelity was being challenged by this. And what she ended up doing was setting up a whole movement which then found alignment with a particular part of, of the church. Um, I guess what I'm seeing today is 
these different layers of conviction which aren't necessarily connected to, obviously, um, the theological origin they come from, but a social strata as much as they are theological strata, then coming to a head in various contexts. So I see that very similar to how, you know, that, that people can argue it's the interference of government, politics and religion in their lives and whether religion is there to lead or dictate. And there is a big difference between the two in my mind. And I sit there and you see when you see uh, religion dictating, you must do this rather than we suggest or advise. I think that's the big thing. And I think there's been a big change in what I see as religious leaders. Um, and I will include yourself in this and Charlie, that they are leaders now who see that their objective isn't necessarily to dictate what you must and mustn't do. And I wonder if that's a big change. And how do you see that, Charlie, from your side? I see it as a huge change. And I also think that it takes a sense of self-confidence. I think when a movement or a leadership group feel confident enough, they can give voice to dissent. I like to think it's one of the strengths of liberal Judaism that actually we can have a whole range of views within us and allow lots of people to lead without that feeling like it detracts from having one big booming voice that speaks for everybody and says, this is what you must do. And I think we've been helped in some ways by a society where we've seen these big, and I will say it, male leaders who are very much dictating one way and my way is the right way. And actually, whether it's violence or not necessarily violence that's about striking, but violence in other ways spilling out in order to control, I think we have have a real responsibility as progressive religious leaders to show a different way of leading which is about a multi-vocality and about that sense and to come back you know as you said Leo about things coming in cycles for me the Talmud preserves the minority opinion and I've said it before in the show and I'll say it again it preserves the minority opinion in this sense that you've got to have a confident leadership that says we can say that there was dissent and for me if we're going to talk about my theology that's where God lives, right? God lives in the creativity of being able to dispute for the sake of heaven with each other. I know, for example, in interfaith discussion, that often where we end up is looking for where we agree with each other. One of the things I love about my discussions with, with John is that we are confident enough in our relationship with each other to disagree and to have different theologies and and that's that's true friendship and that's true leadership. And and how how from your side in the Church of England does that mean for you, John? You are able to lead, you're able to advise, you're able to help, you're able to nurture people. But that doesn't mean that you're able to, you know, in the past it would have been about instructing and demanding that people do certain things but you are you are able to lead now do you feel that has changed in the church i think for me leadership at present is about um holding one's own integrity uh and it's about um also holding narrative um scriptural narrative but also the narrative of what it means to be human within our society so whenever i preach um i will be connecting the text of scripture with people's lives with my own experience so that 
um, hopefully that text comes alive and they can make sense of it and they can see themselves in it and they can see God in it. And I guess one of the struggles for me as a gay man in the Church of England is that uh, the invitation for me to share my integrity is limited. Um, It's not possible for a gay man to, a gay priest, to marry another priest of the same gender in the Church of England. They would have their license taken away and no longer be able to practice ministry. Um, It's not possible in the Church of England to bless a same-sex relationship, again, on pain of having your license removed or undergoing discipline within the church. So living one's integrity and the way you present that, for me, there are many sort of uh, avenues into articulating to someone else what integrity looks like and um, presenting that as a, as a model, as a narrative to, to emulate, to copy, to help them to think about where they are at the moment in relation to what's going on around them and how they might move and how the religious tradition informs who they might or could or could or possibly be, who they could grow into, um, how life could be different for them. Um, how life could be fuller for them. All of those things for me are about, about leadership. Um, and I guess that is a shift from telling people what to do to um, modelling it, but also enabling. But I don't think it's a, a shift that's taken place only in the church. I think it's taken place across society. I think you've nailed it there. It's a shift that happens in society all the time. And that's where it's really important because I sit there in other areas I'm involved in and you sit there and people say, oh, I like I like that field or I like that woods, how it looks now with the impression or the thought that we're going to keep it that way. And you just can't. Nothing stays the same. It evolves and it changes. Sometimes it goes better, sometimes it worse, but it has to evolve and it has to move forward. And I think you've really summed that up very well. I just had this vision of once John and I were out in um, London and we were looking for somewhere to have a drink and we ended up in this pub and upstairs in the pub they were having some sort of fancy dress priests and do you remember that and they were we walked into this bar and they were something like that except it was all men I think they all all people dressed just as the bishops did you go to like join them we sat down (laughs) and um they were like began talking to us and they were like so what do you do and John's like actually I'm a priest (laughs) (laughs) and that kind of image of what do you think a priest and a rabbi are going to look like surrounded by all these people dressed up like wearing the costume of was an image that well you can see years later it when we can't do that this year um it still stays with me so um, we're in December. Uh, something sort of major sort of happens into December. We should move on and talk um, about And really, uh, the first, my first question to the three of you is, are you playing Whamageddon and are you still alive? I'm sorry, I don't know what Whamageddon is. <laughs> so Whamageddon, so this is, this is the education us. part. The education is coming from me tonight, today. There you go, not, not Charlie. Whamageddon <laughs> has been around for about 10 years and it is how long you can last from the 1st of December before you hear Last Christmas. But oh, you have well, to hear the I real one, not play it. Because... doesn't oh, count. I, how, um, a week? Was it, was it December last no. Friday? No. No. No, so I've... No, it wasn't. Okay, so I have a negative answer. Because at this time of year, obviously being a nice Jewish girl, I am spending the last two or three weeks of the term with my kids all wanting to learn Christmas songs on the piano. And so last Friday I had a lovely lesson with my I know, tw- a 12-year-old, I think he's 12-year-old boy. And I said, okay, he'd just done an exam. So it's like, okay, let's, you know, relax, chill out. What Christmas song do you want to learn? Last Christmas. 
He's 12. I was 12 when Last Christmas was released. They still love it. So we watched it. We watched the video on my iPad. And oh my God, that is such a great video. The Last Christmas video. I mean, it is classic. I mean, the way it tells a story, it's biblical in the way it tells its story in two minutes. It's like a two or three minute song. And you've just got that whole story about that relationship and she dumped him for the best friend and it's George Michael and of course it's sad because he's no longer with us um, and that was obviously when he was straight or was pretending to be I, it was just I mean it was so, just I mean, I, I, it was magical it is such a great song and such a great video I'm going to be teaching it this so afternoon so I have a lot of so Jewish well and Christian friends and I would actually say that some of my Jewish friends <laughs> go in more for Christmas the bling side of Christmas than some of my Christian friends so I'm going to ask Rebecca and Charlie, have you got Christmas trees? I think that you've missed the fact that it's my birthday on Christmas oh, Day. Yeah, sorry. So, so I have if any huge... of you, if anybody follows Hello. Charlie on social media, <laughs> they'll know that she's mentioned this many, many times. I have huge trauma around the fact that there is a whole set of people who are ignoring my birthday and getting presents for themselves on my birthday on Christmas Day. It's hugely traumatic for me. And the fact that then people will say to me, well, Charlie, go with your, go with your Jewish birthday, which is the first night of Hanukkah. So again, everybody <laughs> is basically having the attention, getting the presents. And I know John is going to say, this is not the message of Christmas giving presents this is not the essence so it's like every december charlie is weeping because she realizes yeah, it's exactly. not all about her <laughs> it's like a whole month as of long as you can compensate you. in the rest of I, life that, i feel, that's i fine. get that i yeah, really make sure that everybody else thinks it's all about her for the rest of the year <laughs> thank you leo that is exactly <laughs> yeah we december is the month we so, have off <laughs> um coming back rebecca do i have a tree I what I normally do is I'll get a very small tree as a little kind of because my kids like again I as I said earlier I teach piano at home so I have about 40 students who who can't come in and out of the house and so they they like to 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 you know see a little Christmas tree so I little get I usually get like a little kind of token one from the garden center but last year I'm in fact I'll do it this year as well but I also like the Hanukkah candles and then I'll give them like golden coins and I'll tell them about Hanukkah as well so I'll kind of you know do a little bit of interfaith education with them but the songs they tend to be mainly Christmas. Last Christmas, well, most of the, the most of the best, yeah, Jingle Bell Rock, Santa Santa Baby. Most of They've the best the ones were written by fashion. Jews, anyway. <laughs> Which is something that That's I might mention really, every now and then. It is really yes, yeah. exactly. Christmas carols, right, the good Leo. ones, or the Christmas songs were all bitten, written by Jews. <laughs> You're absolutely what, right. What You're does it mean right. to you, John? I mean, tell us what you have to do over Christmas. Well, the, the run up to Christmas is is Advent, so um, the new church year starts four weeks before Christmas happens. Um, we've got four weeks of um, Advent means coming, so it's, it's preparation. And the themes of Advent are last judgment, the end of time, uh, the apocalypse. Yom Kippur. <laughs> Gosh, it's quite heavy, isn't it? Well, the fact you've got no, a month right, before a is exactly the same as we have a month before. Uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Yeah. Um, so Christmas yeah. from, for the church, from the church year's perspective doesn't start until Christmas Eve. And Christmas is a season. Again, the church year lasts two weeks and it follows Christmas Eve. But, you know, in reality, everything's in the shops three or four months beforehand. 
Um, and you live in this kind of double world of trying to hold on to Advent, but being aware that most people are in Christmas <laughs> um, and needing to, to cater to both groups. But there's something very special for me about the, the Midnight Mass and uh, remembering the Incarnation and uh, placing Christ in the, in the crib and knowing God with us. Um, that's a very powerful religious experience, but also community experience as well. And there's a, a meeting of the kind of secular uh, throthy celebrations with the, the religious celebrations at that point. And I think there's something very beautiful about that meeting that takes place. I was going to ask you, John, does the sort of commercialism and tack depress you? But maybe not from um, what you've just said. most of us are uh, at least struggle with the kind of shopping in the run-up to Christmas and people ramming into the, you with their, with their shopping trolleys um, and uh, the, the carefully planned family engagement so that no one gets too upset uh, or steals themselves against the, the pain of what's going to happen when the family get together, as well as wanting it all to be perfect. No, I, I don't, I don't I react against the bling so much. I just don't find that much meaning in it, whereas for me the, the focus of meaning is, is somewhere else. Mm. So I'm you know, happy to join in with Christmas parties and Christmas celebrations, and that's, that's fun. Why not? I've um, got a great video of John last New Year's Eve dancing around my living room actually oh, yes. if anybody wants to see <laughs> as part of the leader that's my point that i was saying that actually uh i i get quite involved in doing things in the community for christmas um i mm. put out the, the 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 local lights turning on event that was uh um two weeks ago it was me that recorded it it was me that streamed it it was me that is was, was involved in fundraising so we have lights in the area because i believe it's part of our community and the fact that i may not participate in certain parts of it doesn't mean to say that i don't actually think that we it's really important for our community to have that and get involved in that and it's fascinating to hear it from the other side of, of what you see it from, because I suppose without people like me getting all those bits, it, that allows you to focus on some of the what what's really important of, about this event, which I think is sometimes the mass don't see. No, I, I don't think they do. But, as, you know, your immediate response to the, the Advent stuff is that's that's quite heavy. And that's true. It is quite heavy. So people tend to... Um, mm going in as deep to the water as they're, they're ready to go in um, and then uh, happy to splash around the edges again. I, I, I think I'm certainly not despairing about our secular celebrations of Christmas. I think it's good that they're there, uh, but it's making sure those remain on some level connected and anchored to um, those great vehicles of, of meaning, which actually is what the celebration's about or where the celebration has come from in the first place, depending on your particular take on, on pagan calendars and all that kind of stuff so you have a, i mean i've been in your church a number of times uh it's a, a quite an old building it's normally i assume forget this year because i know this year is going to be completely different when it comes to the midnight mass is it packed to the rafters well i've only, I've only been in post here since february so I, I can't speak about st lawrence's but there are other churches i have been in and usually they are very full um i mean not least because uh an 11 30 eucharist uh, helpfully fits with throwing out time for the pubs um, and what better to do than, than go along to your church um, staggering a little uh, in order to give homage to the true meaning of Christmas. Isn't it one for the road? <laughs> but no I mean churches are, are full it, uh, the um, the numbers for uh, services at Christmas uh, kind of shoot over the over the threshold of anything you'd, you'd expect normally. 
there's um, a real sense at this time of the year of festivals that bring light in because whatever that light is I think we, we need it spiritually but also just physically that it's that time of the year where it's really dark outside we're missing the sun we're missing connection to each other in um, more so this year than ever and that real need for festivals with light in them uh, is really evident with Hanukkah I think with lighting the candles and I want to do a, a bit of a shout out for Liberal Judaism which is Thursday the 17th we've got a big event Liberal Judaism Hanukkah event where we're going to be lighting lots of candles in across our 40 communities but one thing that we're just announcing right now which is we want to give people a chance to uh, mention people that are bringing light into their lives at this moment so we've got a thank you page that will be on the liberal judaism website so www.liberaljudaism.org where you'll be able to say thank you to um, people that have brought light into your life during this time so i encourage you liberal jews or not get out on there and um, say thank you to those people that really are bringing light to us in these times i had a message from my like like many streets, I think, you know, during the pandemic, you know, individual neighbours have started the old WhatsApp group. Um, and my streets is one of them. We've got a WhatsApp group and we've got the woman who lives a couple of doors down from me, who's definitely, you know, anointed leader of the road. Um, but she put a little message around to all of the neighbours a week ago saying, oh, it'd be really nice if everyone, you know, made a big effort with the lights on their houses for Christmas. And, you know, let's really cheer it all up and everything. To which I replied, absolutely, I'll make sure my Hanukkah candles are lit in the window every night starting from the 11th. Because um, I thought I had to make a point. Um, but actually, the next day I was out there with my cheap my cheap lights from Tesco, which I wrapped around my fence. So I've I've joined in. But I, I, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right, Charlie. I mean, just walking down the high streets at these time of year, this time of year when the, the lights have gone on, regardless of whether or not you're celebrating Christmas. I mean, it is lovely. It is. It's really nice. It's special. When when we get to the, like the 5th, 6th of January and it's all gone, it just feels a bit miserable. Although that normally means I'm off snowboarding, so I'm not too disappointed. So you're all right. I'm, I'm, at that point, at that, that time of the year, I'm starting to obsessively look for the the sprouts of the daffodil bulbs coming up but that's my garden in background it's then my kids it. birthday so then we have that to focus on so it's just a long party i know for you, isn't it? i December know in january we get it it's all over from october to january we all have our birthdays so we're all winter baby so john oh, um gosh. hopefully hopefully we're coming to the end of this year of difficulty and what it's meaning to be involved in lockdown for a Judaism, it's been a very interesting year. I've noticed an increase in the um, engagement that people have had through their synagogues online. And we've actually, I've been, I've never seen a year where we've actually been involved as much. What's that been like on your side? Um, I suspect parallel. Um, we quite quickly uh, started live streaming services which was important to do in its own right. But actually, we also ramped up our, our different forms of communication as well. So in terms of email list, um, in terms of posting videos, teaching, um, how people connect with each other through uh, Zoom over coffee. One of the uh, unexpected phenomena within the church is the number of people who are not normally part of a church community who've kind of dropped in to take a look at what happens to see what an act of worship is like. So I'm, I'm struck by how far lockdown has helped the church 
well, A, take a step forwards in terms of its use of technology, um, but B, actually there's been greater accessibility that's that's flowed from that. Um, and by offering people a, a safe way to come into a place of worship or start to explore some, some faith-based um, Christian thinking, um, people have been quite open and receptive to that. And do you think, um, I mean, this is really a question to both John and Charlie, in fact, all of you, do you think as well as that, it's also because it's been such a difficult year, there's also been a greater demand because there are more people looking for some kind of spiritual comfort, nourishment, whatever you call it. Because, I mean, as Leo said, we've seen the exact same thing in our synagogues. We've had many, many more people tuning in. And we've also had a lot of people coming forward who are interested in joining either who are Jewish or are actually interested in starting the path to conversion as well. And we've seen a real uptick in that. So do you think, again, it's that that kind of need for something that's driving people I think people it's to, a need for something, but I also wouldn't underestimate how difficult it is to walk through the door of a synagogue or a church for the first time. And I think, as John said, dropping in, and perhaps it's also midnight mass after having gone to the pub, you know, that it does, it also makes it easier it's hard to walk through the door of religious buildings. And I think it's also, if you're looking to convert, be part of a Jewish community, that's really hard. I always say, the first thing I say to somebody when they come to me um, in a synagogue wanting to begin that journey to Judaism, like, wow, that was a big thing you did walking through the door. Because it's, mm. it's if you grow up in it or you're part of it or you're insider, you forget how how because we feel so at home and so comfortable and so we speak the language and I don't mean literally Hebrew but we we know all the terms and the way to interact and I think that what being online has allowed people to to creep in and actually take a seat in the back and have a look and dip their toe in the water and not as they do in particularly in many of our liberal communities where we're small you creep in at the back but very quickly because we don't we can see you that's it next week you're the treasurer of the community (laughs) and this has allowed people to move at their own space and their own pace um so in terms of of Mm. the question about meeting a need i think simply through some of the physical realities of lockdown people have been forced back to being part of a local community rather than being a community that's um, connected through various sort of networks be that communication transport networks or uh, work-based networks Um, And with that, many people in the community have taken steps to look after each other. Um, So I think there's been a very practical rediscovery of lived community, paradoxically, in the context of of lockdown, that people have had to look after each other. And in experiencing that love of of meeting neighbour, there's something quite powerful that's happened, which has brought people together and, and given people a different sense of perspective on what their lives are about and what's important. And for me, that's one of the things that's brought a um, more religious, spiritual interest to the surface, uh, rather than the sense of, of, of emptiness or uh, uncertainty. But I'll put alongside that, I think um, the combination of, of Brexit and the Amer- American elections um, with COVID has been a huge existential challenge for people. And I think we're at the we're at the apex of a huge existential challenge in terms of western philosophy and politics and um stability anyway so i don't think it's so much that people are falling back on religion or finding themselves empty and needing to find something to fill a space as that actually religious traditions have narratives which answer those questions that are able to speak to those questions 
Um, so it might be scary to come through the door of place of faith, but actually the fact it's possible to just go and, is there something to this that could be helpful? Is there something that is to this which can um, make better sense of how the world is to me? And I think people are finding the answer is yes. I think the idea in the, of that there is normality or there is not, it's not necessarily the right normality, but there's similarity in something that you've seen before and you can relate to it um, almost like you can go back and you can sit there and read a children's story that you read as a kid and you can go, do you know what? I feel comfortable reading this. I'm not saying that it's correct. I'm not saying it's absolutely factually perfect, but it's an it's it's reassuring that it's there and that it's it's ever present and i think that's something that i think religion can do for people as you say when you're sitting in a world of turmoil being able to sit there and read something that actually isn't you're not going to turn the page and oh my god it's another car crash beyond the car crash that we've already had which is what it seems to be when you turn on the news at the moment is quite quite reassuring through twitter <laughs> yeah i'm not much into um giving people something because it gives them comfort. Um, it may well be that things that happen in church in our religious buildings are familiar for individuals uh, who, who attend, who are part of the congregation. Uh, but more often than not, I think um, what I end up doing is, is challenging people. And that challenge usually confronts with a sort of truth that uh, there's an alignment with helping people to think about who and how they are in the world, which actually is reassuring because it pairs at reality um, rather than it being something which is just comforting, something which is just a sop is too strong a word. It's easy to invent a narrative to make people feel good. But actually the thing which gives uh, a real foundation of reassurance is being confronted with something which is true, that has integrity, that has depth, that makes sense of the whole of reality and not just the one bit of it I want to look at. John, if people want to continue this conversation, they want to meet you and hear more about... Um, your priesthood and follow you where can they find you um, so I've really enjoyed talking with you and I hope that someone having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with me would be as stimulating and enjoyable um, I'm you can follow me on my twitter feed uh, which is at and then it's <laughs> itinerant priest but the t is knocked off at the end and it becomes a one instead so it's at itinerant priest one we will tag you in our at do you know what twitter posts so people Perfect. can find you via via yeah, us thanks so where can people find John. you rebecca so i run a number of different twitter accounts um personally it's at our singerman um and i also run the kingston liberal synagogue which is at kingston lib shawl and obviously at June. And where what? if they haven't got enough of Charlie and just remember it's her birthday this month. Nobody else's. Just her birthday. Is it? Charlie, where can people uh, wish you happy birthday? They can wish me happy birthday on the 25th of December. That's the 25th of December at Rab Charlie on Twitter and under Charlie Beginsky on Facebook. And I look forward to all your birthday wishes. And Leo, in case they want to come via you to wish me happy birthday, where can they find you? Yeah, I, I'm just a conduit for people to say, but you know, uh, Rabbi Charlie. It's like, yes, yes, thank you. As a gatekeeper of that, you're the gatekeeper, uh, and also my daughter. Sometimes that's all people ever refer to me as. Oh, you're uh, Jesse's father. Yes, I do have a personality, but no, not really. Uh, they can find me at WFC Kigo on Twitter. <laughs>
Thank you all so much for being with us today. Thank you especially to John. It's been an absolute delight and we look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks for our next podcast.